I'm Dan Kurtzphalen, and this is the Foreign Affairs Interview. The one thing that really triggers the Global South is whenever U.S. national interests are couched in a language of moral superiority, when in fact everyone knows that there is a big disconnect between words and deeds. Russia's war in Ukraine has been met with newfound Western unity. But take a step back, and the world's democracies are far from united. If anything, the last year has highlighted just how differently the rest of the world sees not only the war, but the entire global landscape. In the latest issue of Foreign Affairs, policymakers and scholars from Africa, Latin America, and South and Southeast Asia explore what the return of great power competition means for their countries and regions. My colleague, Justin Vogt, spoke with three of these authors, Tim Marifi, Nira Pomerao, and Matthias Spector, at a recent event. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us. I'm Justin Vogt, Executive Editor of Foreign Affairs. And today we're going to be talking about the launch of our May-June issue, which has this special cover package, The Nine World. And we've got a great panel of three really interesting guests who have a lot of insight to bring to bear on this topic. Matthias Spector is Professor of International Relations at Fundacio Getulio Vargas in Sao Paulo. He's a non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and he's a visiting scholar at Princeton University. Welcome, Matthias. Thank you. Nira Pama Rao was India's Foreign Secretary from 2009 to 2011. She also served as India's Ambassador to China and Ambassador to the United States. Ambassador Rao, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. And uh, finally, Tim Murithi is head of peacebuilding interventions at the Institute for Justice and Reconciliation and a professor of African studies at the University of Cape Town and Stellenbosch University in South Africa. So thank you, Tim, for joining us. Thank you. I want to start by asking you all to talk a little bit about a theme that comes up in all of your pieces and that I think is very central and is analytically important, but also has a sort of emotional charge to it that I think is interesting. And that's the charge of Western hypocrisy. How hypocritical really is the West, is the United States, is Europe when it comes to condemning the Russian invasion of Ukraine, for example? So I'm going to start with Ambassador Rao. I'd like to hear you talk about this because you write about this very powerfully in your piece. And I thought that it would be an interesting way to start the conversation. What do you really mean when you say that these kinds of charges are hypocritical? Thank you, Justin, and it's a privilege to be here joining this discussion. I would start from, you know, I'm sitting here in the deep south of India, and I'd like to talk a little about how the home audience feels about these things here in my country. And I believe that public opinion in countries like mine, a vast majority of such opinion, has long been critical of what we perceive as the hypocrisy of the West and the difference in standards that are applied to the West versus the rest of the world. And of course, this could have something to do the way we feel, that is, could have something to do with our long colonial history and the depredations that rose from it. And then nearer home, I mean, looking at South Asia, the US debacle in Afghanistan, for instance, and the strategic blunders which we regard as blunders based on completely flawed assumptions about Iraq's nuclear capability, have also played themselves out before our very eyes over the last two, two and a half decades. 
And then furthermore, because, you know, the world is one in many ways and information travels at the speed of light, the racial divides in the United States are another example of the imperfections in your society. Although I'll also say, as an Indian, and I think I speak on behalf of many Indians when I say this, we deeply admire the strength of American democratic institutions and especially your constitution, which continues to be deeply inspirational for many of us. But we are, of course, very sensitive to what we see as hectoring about our democratic polity and domestic politics, as also definitive issues like Kashmir, which are tied up very fundamentally with our idea of what we are as a nation state. So for all these reasons, I feel that perhaps by and large Americans need to understand the situation. But I'd also like to add that our two countries have crafted a very mature, and I'd say a grown-up relationship today that stresses common ground rather than differences. And let me also say that Many Indians, and I for one, do not support Russia's actions in Ukraine. However, we read the situation in terms of its impact on our national interest and the reverberations from that conflict with the need to ensure that we remain insulated as far as possible from the economic impact of the war, which is essentially, as we see it, an East-West struggle that is taking on an obsessive, an almost obsessive, destructive character with no signs of abatement. So this is not a struggle in which we, I feel, in the global south in large measure want to be involved because the war takes away what we feel should be a major focus for all of us. Rapid economic development, climate change, pandemics, the sufferings of people in many parts of the developing world would seem to be ignored at this time. So, and the situation, of course, points to inequities in the global order, where new and emerging countries and countries with large populations and economies like India have little to say in the governance of the international order. So then that leads me to, you know, we'll probably discuss this reform of multilateral institutions and the UN Security Council and the Bretton Woods institutions. Would it actually be better if powerful countries like the United States simply said, well, yeah, well, we're just, we're just going to pursue our national interests too. That is, you know, what, if, if that's good for what's good for the goose is good for the gander. You know, if, if you, if you want to frame your own actions and, and policies in terms of national interest, well, so, so shall we. What do you think? What you're really asking is, what is it that triggers global South countries to denounce hypocrisy, to have some sort of emotional reaction to U.S. policy and the way U.S. leaders in particular, but also European leaders are framing the war in the Ukraine. And the ambassador did a great job telling us something about India that I think applies across the board. And the way I see it is that there are three recurrent things, right? The one thing that really triggers the global South is whenever U.S. national interests are couched in a language of moral superiority, when in fact, everyone knows that there is a big disconnect between words and deeds. You began by asking, well, is what Russia is doing in the Ukraine comparable to what the United States did in Iraq? You know, from a purely national interest perspective across the global south, we're talking about the unlawful killing of thousands of civilians 
the destruction of rich cultural heritage, the displacement of millions of people. So is it comparable? Well, on many scores, it is comparable in violation of the spirit and the letter of the UN Charter. There we go. The other thing that really triggers the Global South, I think, and this is really important, is this notion that is so prevalent in the West that the Western order is rules-based. There's no doubt that international order has many, many rules and institutions that were set up by the United States and Europe, and these have contributed enormously to countries around the globe. And, you know, the Indias and South Africas and Brazils of the world have benefited from this liberal international order in the last 30 years. But the notion that the powerful players in this system abide by the rules is really quite strange because if anything, the United States has been a revisionist power coming up with new rules, with new institutions, many times coercing parties to join when it's not overt military coercion, many times it's economic coercion, economic dislocation. So the notion that you have status quo powers that are responsible and you have these rising states that are irresponsible stakeholders rings so hollow, right? And finally, the third thing, I think, Justin, that triggers the global south is a framing that says, well, today we look at the world and global order is divided between democracy-loving progressive countries and authoritarian states. There's no doubt that China and Russia are authoritarian states. And the Indias, Brazil, South Africa, Indonesias, which are democracies, don't like that. But the fact is that US support for autocracy has been prevalent throughout America's experience as a major power since 1945. Even today, you know, of the 50 countries that Freedom House describes as dictatorships, the United States provides military aid to 35 of the 50. So the notion that you have a summit of democracies that commits America to promoting democracy sounds hollow again. And it looks as if, from a Global South perspective, this is national interest, couched in a language of moral superiority. And it is therefore no wonder that people react. I want to bring Tim into this because you have this idea for how that might be changed, not by doing away with the ideas of a liberal order, but by essentially holding, trying to find a way to hold the great powers through the UN to those principles, to, to make the liberal order actually more liberal and more of an order. Can you talk about the mechanism that you, you see for doing that? Thank you, Justin. I think to your first uh, point on uh, hypocrisy, I think what we've seen, in fact, is that from the very outset, if we think of the international system, the United Nations uh, collective security system, but let's go even further back to the League of Nations and actually trace how the League of Nations, in fact, came into disrepute. It was because the major powers, the big powers, you know, decided to actually take action uh, where they felt their interests were very prevalent. And the United Nations is no different. It's from the very outset, it was, in fact, designed to ensure that the major powers, okay, they don't go into an all-out war against each other, which in the modern era is, is one where atomic and nuclear weapons would be used. But the major powers have managed to use the system to co-opt the system, in fact, to pursue their own 
interests. So every time we hear the refrain, <clears throat> the rules-based international order, in fact, the the hypocrisy actually is quite, uh, you know, it's quite evident. It does rub a lot of the, you know, thinkers and policymakers in, this, in the global south and in Africa in particular the wrong way, because I think the actions of the major powers have really eroded the pretense of a rules-based order. And I would equate the Iraq invasion with the Ukraine invasion, both in violation of the United Nations Charter. I think what you find, unfortunately, in Washington is a very convenient amnesia when it comes to some of the actions that they have taken in the past and their refusal to actually look back, which is very dangerous for a country that wields such power, not to be able to understand what, in fact, it has has done in other parts of the world. My, uh, as you highlighted, the the way forward I see it is not for us to trip, as you say, uh, you know, or the entire system and say there is nothing and therefore might makes right because that is really a recipe for international anarchy and chaos, which some would say we already do have and we're trying to get out of that hole right now, but is in fact to create a genuine system of rules in which even the major powers are held to account and cannot simply assert their might wherever they feel the need to do so. The Ukraine crisis, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, in which untold suffering is happening, women, children dead, murdered, you know, millions displaced. The Ukraine uh, conflict has in fact almost shone a light, right, on the dysfunctionality of the current system. There hasn't really been a rules-based order. It's on paper, but it hasn't been respected, particularly by the powerful. I would say the P5, US, UK, France, China, Russia. And if anything, the UN Security Council resembles more of an insecurity council rather than a security council. The ambassador of India, in fact, I think said the UN Security Council was beginning to resemble the mock UN Security Councils that we see convened by students. And I think she's got a very important point. The might still does make right in the world that we're in currently. And the question is, how can that be constrained in a system which will be respected by all? And I think the proposals that I have in the article speak of the notion or idea of a world parliament, the idea of a supranational council that can contain the excesses of nation states, the devolution of power up and vertically upwards and downwards, and the creation of other institutions that actually will genuinely contribute towards international peace and security. Now, you can say major powers are not really going to be enticed by such idea, and it's actually true. I wouldn't really count on major powers being in the front of your queue when we try to construct this new system, and that has to be very, very clear. So we're not being naive here. We're saying if we want to move forward to a world that is actually more stable and less chaotic, then this is what we need to design. Part of the discussion we're having here is predicated. There's something in the background of it. I think there's an assumption that the order has changed in a way since the early years of the post-Cold War era, since, let's say, roughly since the 1990s, which you know, was famously described as the unipolar moment, when you have an ascendant United States, no peer competitor. And I think there's a kind of emerging conventional wisdom, at least in Western capitals, that we've either entered or we are entering a different era now, at least a less unipolar era, maybe something like a bipolar era where China becomes more of a peer competitor of the United States, maybe a multipolar era where there are multiple centers of power. 
The current issue of the magazine, not part of the cover package, features this article by political scientists Stephen Brooks and William Walforth, who basically say, no, that's not true. That's a myth. They call it the myth of multipolarity. That in fact, we're still in basically a unipolar moment, that we're still in the midst of very much a US-led order. I wonder what you make of that debate, of that argument, and, and more broadly, how does it look You know, from India, from Brazil, from South Africa? Ambassador Rao, can you tell us how it looks from where you are? Yeah, thanks, Justin. In fact, I'm reminded very much of the line from Yeats's poem, Easter 1916, when he said, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. And in many ways, I think our world is without definition today. Because the unipolar world we saw after the collapse of the Soviet Union, with the domination of the United States, no doubt, is much more congested, let me say. It's much more cribbed, it's much more cabined and much more confined. I think that this restricts the space originally monopolized by the United States and tears holes in the fabric of its superpower status. In our own region, for example, of the Indo-Pacific and in South Asia, the rise of China has been quite phenomenal. All this having been achieved in the space of one generation, one wonders what the next generation will bring. But the reach of China is constantly being extended by virtue of its economic strength and its growing military capabilities. And therefore, the world today, if you ask me to define it, is quite a complicated place. And the deepening estrangement between China and the United States makes the future very uncertain. Even if it's not a bipolar world, it's certainly, you know, a world full of these fissions taking place, as it were. Something has happened. Something is different. It's it's hard yeah. to name it exactly. Yeah. But do you agree? Does that does it look that way to you as well? Sure, absolutely. So one of the major differences between the world today and the world 30 years ago is that now it looks as if there are other great powers in the field. And although the paper by Brooks and Wolforth is very eloquent, and it speaks to a raging debate in political science as to what the polarity of the system is. I think from a Global South perspective, what we need to take into account is three major things. First of all, now, unlike it was the case 30 years ago, the United States cannot afford not to take Russia and China seriously, not only in their own regions, not only in Eastern Europe and in Southeast Asia, but in other regions as well. I mean, think of Russia in Syria, or think of China in the Indian Ocean, in Africa, the Middle East, and I would say even in Latin America. So the fact that the United States can no longer consider political or military intervention anywhere in the world without playing, paying close attention to these other powers suggests that something has changed. The second point is that both Russia and China are trying very hard, working very hard, to create or recreate, rather, spheres of influence in their own regions. What this means is that they're trying to aggregate military power through internal mobilization and through new alliances and partnerships. And their ambition is to deny the United States hegemony in their own region. This is what political scientists call balancing. And we now see balancing behavior, which is typical of multipolar systems. And third, the United States, in response to this, is doing whatever it can to constrain the economic growth of both China and Russia on the argument that economic growth is what then undergirds military power. And this is creating a dynamic which is new 
and its security competition at a level that our generation hadn't seen really since the Cold War. So put these three things together and you have what looks like a multipolar system. You know, even if uh, multipolarity may not be an accurate term to describe the state of affairs in the world today, it's quite clear that the geopolitics of our century is defined by multi-alignments and not just by polarity or a simply defined alliance system. Tim, what do you think? What is your view? Do you share the other panelists' idea that we actually are in something quite a bit different than we were, say, 30 years ago? Yes, I think there's a shift happening for sure. And I would say that uh, obviously we're the reference point, the benchmark would be the Cold War, when we did have the appearance of two bipolar, the bipolar system with two powers, so with significant spheres of influence, and an interregnum of the last 30 years since 1992, when we've seen a gradual shift. In fact, I think you could say within that period of time, US supremacy was clear in terms of its military power, the hard power, military uh, folks like to use the word full spectrum dominance. There is no country in the world that can project its power the way the US can, and perhaps even on multiple fronts. But at the same time, you hear the refrain as to whether in Washington, particularly amongst Washington policymakers, whether they want to continue being the world's policemen. And the only way to avoid being the world's policeman is to find a way for the rest of the world to actually carry its burden. And it's kind of doing that in Europe. We're trying to get the Europeans to carry some of the load. We think uh, German tanks in Ukraine. But at the same time, it's also met with some resentment, you know, as to you're securing ours, the spheres of influence so that, in fact, your corporations can then come and, and benefit and wreak and generate income for themselves. Now, U.S. has a tremendous advantage when it comes to soft power, and it's just the nature of things. It's a very large country with multiple cultures existing, traditions of music, poetry, all the rest of it. The world gravitates to it, not to mention Hollywood and uh, Netflix, if I can even throw that into the equation. Yeah, um, I, would put, I would put those higher on the list than American poetry. No offense to American poets. <laughs> you know, so, so the U.S., what the U.S. has also is the cultural power, influence. Right. on the rest of the world, which is voluntary because countries, the people within those countries choose to engage with that. And so it, it does have, almost I would say it has a soft spot from the African perspective, what our young people are listening to, what they're looking at. It therefore has the potential to actually adopt a different approach to trying to, if you will, influence and mold the world rather than simply the hard power. It uses hard power whenever it needs to. And not even to mention the clandestine services, which operate quite significantly across the, the world. But it has the ability to start a new conversation to say, OK, how can we build a world? Yes, we are dominant. But how do we build a world in which, in fact, we can create rules that we can all respect? And I think the moment we're in globally right now is akin to the formation of when the 13 states in America actually were trying to unify themselves into the union and what we have globally is that kind of a inflection point and the problem i think in washington is that the policymakers and the decision makers are unable to see that there's a there's a major blind spot in trying to see that this is a huge opportunity to actually mold a world in which yes the us will still be there it will still be dominant it will still have the ability to project its power but it can help to create the world in conversation and in tandem with other powers that exist of a new world in which, yes, their U.S. power will be constrained, power will be constrained, Russia's power will be constrained, Europe's as well, but it will be a world in which we have rules and obligations and norms that everyone actually 
respects and lives up to. It's an interesting analogy to the uh, to the the sort of pre-independence colonial moment in America. It's an interesting interesting one for Americans to to consider. And you all have played a, a great role in helping to, to increase public understanding, at least amongst our readers and subscribers and members. Um, thanks again, and uh, be well. Thank you for listening. You can find the articles that we discussed on today's show at foreignaffairs.com. The Foreign Affairs Interview is produced by Kate Brannon, Julia Fleming-Dresser, and Molly McEnany. Special thanks also to Grace Finlayson, Caitlin Joseph, Nora Revenaugh, Asher Ross, Gabrielle Sierra, and Marcus Zacharia. Our theme music was written and performed by Robin Hilton. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review it. We release a new show every other Thursday. Thanks again for tuning in.